Good morning. Welcome to Legendary LQ Radio Station. I'm your host, Carrie Newmox, and today I'm speaking with District Attorney Satana DeBerry, and we're going to discuss a bit about her life, her career, and her goals. Satana DeBerry serves as the elected District Attorney for Durham County. As District Attorney, she has prioritized the prosecution of serious offenses, implemented policies to reduce unnecessary pretrial incarceration and court involvement, and worked to improve trust and equity in the courts. Throughout her career, Dee Barry has worked to dismantle systems that restrict the lives of poor people, families, communities of color, and other marginalized and underrepresented groups. She brings to the Office of District Attorney extensive experience, having served as a criminal defense attorney in her hometown of Hamlin, North Carolina, general counsel for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, and executive director of the nonprofit North Carolina Housing Coalition. Dee Barry is a recipient of the North Carolina Justice Center's 2020 Defender of Justice Award for Litigation, the Duke Law Alumni Association's 2020 Charles S. Murphy Award for Civic Service, and Attorney General Josh Stein's Dogwood Award. She received her A.B. in Sociology from Princeton University, her Juris Doctorate from Duke University School of Law, and her Master's in Business Administration from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She is a mother who enjoys spending time with her active teenage daughters. Welcome, District Attorney DeBerry. We are so excited to have you here today. I'm glad to be here. So I have a couple of questions I would love to ask you, but first, I would love for you to elaborate a bit more on your pathways to getting where you are today. Great. What would you like to know? Um, I'm particularly interested in your experience as a criminal defense attorney and how that has impacted um, your desire to be district attorney and how you feel about that role. Okay. Um, so I... Uh, you know, graduated from law school and went to D.C., as all Duke lawyers there did back then. Um, and I ended up coming home and opening a practice with a good friend of mine uh, that I'd grown up with. And she had some clients. Uh, she was mostly doing real estate and representing churches. I didn't really have any clients. And somebody told me if I went down to the courthouse and put my name on a list, I would get some clients. I went down to the courthouse, put my name on what ended up being the court-appointed list, um, and uh, that very first day got some criminal defense clients um, and some people who had been charged with some fairly serious uh, issues. And so I kind of fell into being a criminal defense attorney. And so I spent about five years representing people in my hometown where I had grown up. And what I really learned from that experience was, you know, these were people I knew. Right, yeah. I was going to ask how, how, like, practicing in your hometown, how did that affect how you went about your cases? Right, like, I'd, I'd known most of them. You know, I was still at that point in my 20s, so these were people that I had known growing up. So I, did, I knew them not to be bad people. What I saw really clearly was their lack of opportunity, um, their lack of access to education, health care, especially mental health care, um, how they were just kind of stuck and what and the choices that they made as a result of being stuck. Um, and I also saw, you know, when you're a little kid, you think everybody lives like like you live, right? Uh, my parents were school teachers. Um, I grandparents had been school teachers you know I grew up as as close to middle class as you can as a black person in rural North Carolina and um, 
felt safe and protected and uh, you know, always knew I was going to go to college. And I don't know that I, I looked at my contemporaries and, and thought they never, some of them never had that same amount of opportunity. And I saw where that lack of opportunity landed them. Um, and I saw that they, they had been failed over and over by almost every system, right? Whether that was education, healthcare, just everywhere they turned, they couldn't get help. Um, and as a criminal defense attorney, I was really getting them right before they were about to go off the cliff, right? And the best that I could do was push them a little bit further back from the cliff, but the nature of their lives and the nature of um, what it means to be poor and, and black and marginalized in this country meant that they would be back on that cliff soon. Um, and, you know, it was not an experience that I'd had before. Even training as a lawyer, you know, I thought, well, you know, if you've been accused of a crime, you must have at, at the very least been where the crime was, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and that's not necessarily true. You know, a lot of those people lived in communities where the police were, uh, or there was some law enforcement activity all the time. So imagine if you lived in an environment where you were literally being watched 24-7. And every time you take a step, um, you take a step out of line, that step is not corrected, it's punished. Yeah, I'm from Chicago, and I would say very clearly you can see police are in the south side and west side neighborhoods, but not to help us, more to police us and find reasons to arrest people. And it's really unfortunate. Um, so I can only imagine how it is in North Carolina and, and love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, and I think that's how it is everywhere. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we know is uh, that black and brown and broke communities are over-policed. That's not a political statement. That is just the reality of American American policing. Um, we know that there's not really a difference in behavior um, around drugs or violence or gender-based violence or intimate partner violence or any of that across race. But if you live in a community where there's a strong police presence uh, and the police are incentivized, right, for arrest, then they are going to arrest you. Um, and then you are probably going to be prosecuted. And one of the things I learned as a criminal defense attorney, at least back then, was that the prosecutor didn't really care about my client's stories, right? Didn't want to hear how they'd grown up, that they were good people, or they had mental health issues, or they were poor. I don't know, like, well, you know, they did what they did. They need to pay. Um, and so that was, dis that was disillusion disillusioning, certainly. Do you think um, from the prosecutor's role that is what they're taught to do, or it is more about personality and a person who takes on that role? I think it is both. Okay. There is a school of prosecution that says you just take what law enforcement brings you. Um, you don't look behind it. You look to see if you have what you, you have enough to prosecute that person. If you have enough to prosecute that person, you prosecute that person. You don't bring any value judgment to it. You don't bring any personal experience to it. 
Um, obviously, I don't belong to that school of prosecution. I reject that uh, because, you know, I am a, a black person living in America, and I know that people are more than just that criminal charge. And so what we hope to do in our office really is look at the whole person, um, look at our community, reflect what our community values are around prosecution, right? Which means um, we hope we want to hold people accountable when they cause harm to other people. Right? We don't want to just be punishing people um, for things that may be beyond their control or that really they're only hurting themselves, right? We want to hold them accountable when they break this social contract with each other. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so you kind of addressed this a little bit, but how do you believe your identity as a black woman informs the work you do? Does it affect the relationships you have with the communities you serve? And if so, how? My, when I was your age, I would say I just you know, happened to be a black woman, right? Now, I will tell you that my identity as a black woman informs everything I do. Because I experience this world uh, very differently than some of my colleagues do, right? As black women, we have almost a graduate school-level understanding of the criminal justice system. And we have that because we are often the people who are left behind to take care of families. Um, we are the ones who make bond. It's our brothers and sisters, brothers and uncles and fathers and nephews who um, are most incarcerated. It is increasingly us yeah. who are also facing the threat of incarceration. And that's something people don't talk about a lot, the rates at which black women have been incarcerated for the last 20, 30 years has been steadily increasing. Absolutely. No so absolutely. We are increasingly defendants ourselves. Um, and so we really understand this, this system, and we really bear the brunt of over-incarceration and mass incarceration and over-prosecution and... Um, over enforcement. We also bear the brunt of violence in this society, right? Uh, there is a way that the media would have us think about victims when, in fact, the person most likely to be a victim um, of a crime is a black woman. We are most at risk for intimate partner violence or gender based violence. We uh, are most at risk when we are pregnant of being murdered by our intimate partners. There are so many places in a, in a black woman's life where just the threat of violence is very real. Um, and so that informs my work at really um, a granular level. Thank you for that. Um, 
I kind of want to shift a little bit and ask you to explain, like, what does a district attorney do? Because I don't think a lot of people actually sit down and be like, oh, my DA is this person and they do this. Like, could you elaborate a little bit more on what the your daily routine is and why it's important to know who your district attorney is and what their policies are? This is a very, very good question. Uh, hashtag know your DA. <laughs> Lots of people pay attention to presidential elections, you know, we're in the middle here in North Carolina of a Senate election. People pay a lot of attention to those elections. They have uh, almost no impact on their day-to-day life. They do have some, but it's long-term. It's over cycles. Your local government is impacting your life every day. And your district attorney, especially who that person is, really is setting a tone for how your community deals with the people in your community who are the most vulnerable, right? Because you're a district attorney. There are 2,200 district attor- elected district attorneys in the United States. Uh, fewer than 1% of them are women of color. And they are deciding every day which cases go to court and which cases don't, right? Which criminal charges move forward? Some of the largest law firms in the world are DA's offices, right? So they're also training new lawyers. Uh, They are also impacting local law enforcement policy because if the DA is not charging it, more than if the DA is not prosecuting it, more than likely law enforcement isn't charging it. So if your district attorney is um, somebody who is quote-unquote tough on crime and is prosecuting everything to the fullest extent of the law, you should know that because that should inform how you drive. That should inform how you behave in public, especially as a black person. You want to know kind of what your legal jeopardy is. Um, And it's really the, you know, we watch a lot of procedural television and we get very focused on what the police do and we get very focused on what judges do. But the district attorney is the power, is the person with all of the discretion, right? So if you're a college kid and you sometimes smoke a little weed um, and you're smoking in your, you get pulled over and uh, there's a smell of marijuana and you're arrested, that could be the end of your college career easily. So it's really important to you to know, is my local DA prosecuting that kind of thing? If you are a homeless person or a person with severe and persistent mental illness, and uh, the fact that you live outside or the fact that you sometimes have mental breaks with reality or sometimes get out of control means that you're going to come into constant uh, contact with law enforcement, you and your family need to know whether that means you're going to be arrested and detained, um, whether or not you're going to be on your meds, whether or not even your life might be in jeopardy because you've been... um, Law enforcement has determined you to be somebody who's a threat as opposed to uh, 
somebody who's having a mental health crisis. And if your DA is not involved in those conversations, there's no way for you to know that, right? It's like you're just right. you're just out there rolling the dice with your life. Um, so it's it's very important uh, for you to know who is making those decisions in your community and what those decisions might be. Yeah. Um, kind of following up with that, I watched the past podcast you did, and you talked about how in North Carolina, the district attorney is listed as a constitutional officer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind explaining the importance of this term and what that means for the state of North Carolina? Yeah, so being a constitutional officer means I don't have a, uh, there's not somebody else who has control over the decisions that I make. Um, that means the district attorney has 100% discretion in deciding what moves forward. It doesn't get reviewed by, uh, to the extent that it gets reviewed by by the courts, uh, it has to get in front of the courts, right? And for a DA to, uh, for somebody to appeal a judgment or a charge, those things rarely happen. Um, And so the only, the only people who have any control over the DA is the people who are voting for them, right? People in that jurisdiction who are voting for them. So that is a tremendous amount of power. Um, you know, there's only one person who can remove a DA from office. That's the sitting, uh, the sitting senior resident superior court judge in that jurisdiction. And even then, there are lots of hurdles that have to be jumped through. And DAs tend to serve a long time. They tend to be unopposed in elections because they're barriers to entry, right? You have to be a lawyer to start with. And if you live in a, a rural community or a multi-county jurisdiction, there are only so many lawyers who can who can run. So when somebody becomes a DA, they tend to stay the DA. Um, and so it tends to be somebody who's done it for a long time who has constitutional authority to do literally uh, what they want within the bounds of the law, you hope, right? Right. But whose discretion is um, almost unquestioned. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important to know and even something that I'm starting to learn more about as someone who's interested in like the court systems and learning more about mass incarceration. Um, And I kind of want to follow up a question. Um, I know that in your platform you talk about the policies um, that you've implemented to decrease pretrial incarceration. Um, I wanted to just like ask you as a um, as a DA, what role do you see yourself playing in shifting mass incarceration? Um, And what are your ideal goals for the next five years um, in shifting policies in North Carolina? So I will tell you that I had a, um, I think when I first ran for DA and we talked about shifting mass incarceration, um, I think I thought it was both easier and harder than it has turned out to be. And I say it, it was easier because, look, the DA has all this discretion, right? Right. The DA gets to... Uh, when they're plea bargains, the DA decides who gets plea bargain, who doesn't get a plea bargain. You can force people to trial 
um, trials, although it is a defendant's right, does put you in great jeopardy, right, of going to prison. Um, but, you know, your discretion allows you to make offers that don't include incarceration. So on that side, I thought it was easier. And then on the other side, I thought it was harder because I just felt like, well, it has to be hard because if it wasn't hard uh, to reduce the incarceration of people, we would incarcerate fewer people, right? Right. right? And uh, <laughs> it turns out that it is very, very easy to incarcerate people. You can do this job. You can just take what law enforcement brings you, and you can just prosecute it directly and offer the only pleas that you ever offer are incarceration. Um, you can care not one bit about who's in pretrial detention and uh, work on your own office caseload as slowly or as quickly as you want and leave people to languish in pretrial detention without ever thinking about it, without a lot of consequence, right? And so what we've tried to do is, one, we treat, we really want to, our community has been very clear about some things. And one of the things that they have been very clear about is that they do not want people sitting in jail pre-trial just because they cannot afford um, bond. Right? And so we have worked not just with our office, but with the Sheriff's Department and with our community. Um, and we treat the pretrial detention like they are actual people and that uh, the jail population is a living thing. And so every day, uh, somebody in my office looks at the jail list, sees, sees who's been, who's come in, whether or not that person uh, poses either uh, a threat to themselves or others. If they don't pose a threat to themselves or others, we try to get them released. Right? We reach out to their lawyers. We, um, we take responsibility as a state of North Carolina for the pretrial detention of people. That has resulted in, a, I think now we're, we might be close to definitely a 30% reduction in the pretrial detention. We might be closer to 50 now. Um, there are about 290-something people in uh, the Durham County Detention Center awaiting trial. We would like that to be m even lower than that. That's a huge decrease. That is a huge decrease. Uh, when, when Durham County first built that detention center, the average census was about 1,000 people a, a day. Oh, my God. And so we have consistently been working. Um, and what that means, though, is that we also have to have community resources for people who need support, right? There are people who choose to stay detained because they've been charged with something low level, but they don't have a, a place to sleep or they don't have any place to go to if they uh, leave detention. And so that means as a community, we've had to build up community supports. If we're not going to send people um, to prison when they are held accountable, 
then and we're going to divert people from the criminal justice system, then we need programs to divert people from. So if we say, hey, we're not going to, um, we're going to divert you from court because you're a substance abuser, right? And this is a big one. Um, there are lots of low-level drug charges in North Carolina with which you can be charged that are mostly charged to people who are users. They're not sellers. To the extent that they sell, it's so they can use. So what my office has done is learn how to understand what it means to be using drugs on the street, right? And a great example is heroin. Heroin users, um, they use a lot of product. And they use in pairs because it is not just, uh, the substance itself is not just physically dangerous. When you are high, you are almost incapacitated, right? So other people pose a danger to you. Um, and so people use in pairs so that they can protect each other. They buy a tremendous amount of product every day so that they can they can use it. One person usually holds it, right? Because they're at risk of getting robbed. Um, and so if you get arrested and you're the holder, you got a lot of drugs on you. And you may be charged with trafficking when in fact you're not a trafficker. Um, so what we've come to understand in our office is how to tell the difference, right? Between somebody who's trafficking and somebody who has a uh, significant substance abuse problem and how who we can divert from a criminal justice intervention for somebody who has a significant heroin problem uh, detention and short-term detention or long-term detention is a serious medical con issue right right you you don't just go cold turkey um, and so we don't want to be putting people in the detention center who will get sick. We want them, uh, we want to offer them the opportunity to get clean. And we also want to offer them the opportunity for some case management services um, so that we can help them do that, right? And that, that requires, it requires a lot more than just getting clean, right? right. It requires more than just medical detox and man some case management, some mental health and supportive housing and maybe a job or going back to school or whatever. And so um, so we really did, in order for us to divert as many cases from going to prison, we need our community to step up and, um, and help us provide those community supports. And so we've done that. And so what that means then is that we are really only trying to send um, to prison people for whom we have no other option. And that's generally people who have committed the most serious and the most violent crimes. Okay, um, I'm gonna pivot a little bit. Thank you for your answer on that. And I'm gonna start getting a little bit um, into voting. Um, my first question is with election day right around the corner, I would love for you to speak about the importance of voting and like who does it typically impact, what laws may it impact, and what should people know about this upcoming election? And so what people should know about elections is that there's an election every year. I think people only tune in when there's a presidential election, but your local elections are happening, your congressional elections are happening, literally every year there's a chance for you to vote. 
And what I tell people, uh, I sp spoke last night at North Carolina Central University, and what I told the students last night is, you know, you come to college, you're building some discipline, right? You get up and go to class. You're learning to do that without your parents telling you to do it. You're learning to get your work done without somebody telling you to do it. You're building habits. Voting is a habit. You should go. You should vote. You should build that habit now when you can. Because once you build that habit and you are civically engaged, you become more civically aware. And civic awareness means I know that who to go to if my property taxes are increased, if I don't have clean drinking water, um, if my kid has been uh, arrested for smoking marijuana in the park. I know who in my community is responsible for that. I know who to hold accountable if things aren't going well. And I know how to hold them accountable. And if you're not voting, then only a small number of people in your community are deciding who's doing all those things. I think um, I've read that in midterm elections, only about 15% of registered voters are voting. So people are taking the time to register, which is great. We appreciate that. Everybody should register. But then they're not taking the time to vote. Right? Why do you think that is? That's because people are busy. And also, to a certain extent, there's a lot of noise in our, our culture and our society. A lot of noise on social media. There's a lot of noise in the regular media. People are like, well, it doesn't matter if I vote. But in 2020, uh, the chief justice race here in North Carolina was decided by 401 votes. That is half a dorm of people at Duke. That was statewide, 401 votes. Not 401 votes in Durham County. Right, And there is a difference between who we had as Chief Justice and who we now have as Chief Justice. Right. Which brings me to, you know, why you should vote now, because the person who used to be our Chief Justice is now running for Senate. And I think especially as a woman, especially as a person of color, um, if you have any type of marginalized identity in this society, you should really know who's impacting your rights. Right? And it matters who's in the Senate because that's who picks who's on the Supreme Court. It matters who's on the Supreme Court because we have now seen literally constitutional rights rolled back. Something I would have said if you'd asked me when I was in law school, I would have said I would never happen. Right? If it's settled, if the Supreme Court said it's a constitutional right, it is a constitutional right forever, right? So um, there are people who are adverse to your interests, and you should know that. And they are very loud and clear. Um, and do you want 15% of the people in your community making a decision about who that's going to be? I know I don't. Right. I would love to ask, how has your perception on voting changed after becoming an elected official? 
if it has changed at all? I don't think it has changed. I grew up in a politi- politically active family. My grandmother um, used to work for the old Jim Hunt machine, and folks who grew up in North Carolina know Jim Hunt. Used to, he was called the education governor, made great strides as a state under his two uh, separate stints as governor. But she had me out putting signs up when I was six years old. Uh, and so I saw the real difference that low, that actual on the ground people make, right? Because even now today, if I see uh, Governor Hunt, he remembers my grandmother, he called, you know, he will say her name to me, he will, you know, like, he rem- he remembers those people who work for him. Yeah. Um, and since I've been, an elected official, I, I understand that, right? Because you really do feel accountable to those people. I th- I always vote, so I don't think it's made me, made me vote more, but it certainly made me appreciate your vote more. Yeah. All right, so. And then my last question is um, geared toward specifically the Duke community and kind of the Durham community too, because we are a part of the Durham community, but what advice would you offer um, to these communities as we prepare for the vote on November 8th and just future voting in the election? So I'm a big fan of voting early. Okay. I would. I always encourage people to vote early. That helps you get in the habit because it, anything could happen on election day, including you stand in line for hours. Um, is a little bit morbid, but you get hit by a bus, and I always want my my vote to count. So I'm, if I get hit by a bus before election day, I will still already cast my vote. Uh, but you should vote early. Uh, ask your friends if they are registered to vote, either here or at home. If they're, if they're uh, not registered to vote here, it would be great. We'd love to have them as registered voters of Durham County. Uh, but if they don't want to do that, they should get online, check, see what they need to do, vote absentee at home, and they should do that. You should always register your voice, especially as Duke students. You are some of the most talented people of your generation. You are going to be in positions of authority, you're going to be in positions of leadership, you are going to be in positions of power. If you are not civically engaged, who will be? If you don't care what's happening in your community, who will be? I am just keeping your seat warm for you. So the sooner you get engaged, the sooner uh, you make your ver- voice heard, the sooner I can go to the beach for retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate all of your answers today. Um, I think it's given me a lot to think about. Before we end, I would love to ask if you had any questions for me or any questions you wanted to pose to the larger Duke community. Sure. So tell me, tell me the, your impetus behind wanting to do this episode. 
so um, I am a sociology major here at Duke. And yeah, I'm sociology. <laughs> yes, right? the best major. I'm also minoring in education. And I came into um, college very interested in education policy. And I thought I wanted to be a pub hall major um, because I was interested in politics. But I realized later that that was more from like a sociological angle. And I kind of wanted to figure out a way to combine my interests. And my past three summers, I've been interning and learning more about mass incarceration. Um, I actually spent some time one summer learning about pretrial detention and interviewing people. And that was just such a memorable summer because I didn't know how much pretrial detention impacted the likelihood that someone be incarcerated and just how much like that one thing can impact the rest of someone's life. And since then, I've been taking classes on incarceration and inequality. And so... I was just really interested to hear about um, from your role how like how you felt about mass incarceration and how you felt like you could invoke change specifically in the state of North Carolina. Um, but we also just wanted to hear more about voting and get something out um, for people to listen to before um, election day, just so people can just hear a little bit more, especially from a political figure and just figure out where they stand and just hear about what's going on in the state of North Carolina because I think that's one thing that we as Duke students can do better at, um, being up to date on what's happening in Durham, what's happening in the community that we go to school in and we live in and we're a part of. That's a great answer. <laughs> and sociology really does open your eyes, doesn't it? It really does. My mom is so funny. She literally told me from day one, you should take a social class, you should take a social class. And I was like, nah, I am a public policy major at heart. I took one social class and immediately was like, this is my major. Like, I I do think that it provides a lot of perspective for me and it fits perfectly with my interests. Like, I'm able to combine education, I'm able to combine gender studies, I'm able to combine uh, critical race theory all into one and find what fits, like, what am I looking for? How can I look for equitable solutions? And I think that's something that's really important to me. Being a Chicago native, I know, here in this podcast, everyone's going to laugh at me because I always talk about how I'm from Chicago, but that has informed so much of my life and how I look at equity, um, with Chicago being one of the most um, racially segregated cities and also being a city that I love and I would always say it's the best city in the world. Um, it has its disadvantages, but it also has so much to offer, and I think that perspective has just led me this way and down this path. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for coming. <laughs>